Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. I'm tired. Hey everybody. Um, I'm very tired. I, yeah. um, I stayed up very late last night. Um, I stayed oh, up very really? late last night. I stayed up very late last night reading manga. Because <laughs> I'm a child! <laughs> um, but, you know, there's learning important things about other cultures. Um but yeah, I'm also tired because of everything. <laughs> because of everything. <laughs> yeah. Every time you turn on the news, every time you turn on the radio. Um, I did, I was like, okay, I listen to the bad radio station all the time. And it's <clears> really <throat> horrible because I'm in this cyclical thing now where I'd like, I'll wake up and I'll hear something. And like, I think it was about two days ago, um, the really early morning guy, um, Steve Allen, woke me up mm-hmm. with, it might have been today actually, the most vicious tirade against Meghan Markle I've heard. Like, almost actionable. Like, he was talking <laughs> oh, about... Meghan. Oh, Meghan Markle. Oh, I yeah. remember that. Do yeah. you remember? I was waxing nostalgic about when we <laughs> talked about Meghan Markle. Um, he was talking about how essentially she's an abusive wife who's pretty much got Harry locked up. Um, and, like, what only lets him out to say what she wants him to say for her issues um he's got form for like he really hates women like especially like (laughs) um young women who are in the public eye he really hates them and like so what'll happen is i'll hear something like that and i'll be like oh my god okay i need to find another radio station to have on the Mm. the thing is i can't really listen to music i find it too distracting like to fall asleep but i need to hear like sort of chattering but anyway so it's like i need to listen to something else um, but then you get a phone in where it's like a guy saying, well, I found the best way to solve the coronavirus crisis. Prohibition. And he goes into explaining about how we need to pro- <laughs> like just bad alcohol because that's for the best. Because people can't be trusted. And it's like, okay, well, I can't ever stop. I can't ever stop loving you. Corona- I'm Homer with the disease sandwich, the horrible poison <laughs> sandwich, and the sandwich is labelled crazy racisms. And I just can't stop how eating was, it. How was banning alcohol supposed to... Like address coronavirus specifically. Um, I think it will just it it will make everybody healthy. <laughs> oh right, so it, it'll prove holistic help. Yeah, it's like it, it's a, it, there's a couple of people who phone in like that. They're like proper temperance movement people that I think were like frozen in amber and then were like re like regenerated in a kind of Jurassic Park kind of way. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm in this kind of horrible cycle with that, and everything else is just tiring. Well, don't worry. I mean, you can listen to Times Radio soon. <laughs> soon? Has that started yet? It's started. It's already on. Um, oh, there we go. Perfect. <sighs> listen to Amber Rudd and her daughter. And her daughter. Hmm. Think about saying that ten years ago. That, like, oh, by the way, we've hired a duo, a woman and her daughter. To be fair... A famous woman and her <laughs> also journalist daughter. To be fair, I haven't been drinking in because of you know lockdown. I haven't been drinking in town for a long time. You haven't so been I... drinking because you're afraid of coronavirus. <laughs> what, what but you know, I haven't heard an absurdly posh girl talk very loudly about sex. Like she's only just started having it for a long time, so it might make me feel like I'm like hanging around in Soho again. <laughs> um, no, I do. I don't know what I need to listen to. It's just maybe I'll just get like a white noise generator just <laughs> all day every I day. Mean, to calm my it brain. Is what, it is what Twitch is for. <laughs> yeah. It, that is the reason. Like, if you find uh, someone on Twitch whose okay. voice doesn't immediately make you peel your own nails off, 
But the thing is, I can't I watch mean, people play games because I get really, really frustrated at how bad they are at games. <laughs> I can so handle... you're dealing with the superiority complex as well as uh, your temperance. We could we could argue about whether I'm good at games or not, but you know, while you were going to university, I stayed at home and studied the Xbox. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> but like, yeah, so I can't do that. <clears throat> yeah. But anyway, so <clears throat> this week, I haven't got an article about what's going on with someone from um, someone who was like prominent in the last election. I've got another article for us to look, have a little look at before we go into our final part on Robert Maxwell. Um, there is a nice little thing that, you know, Andrew Neil has lost his job at the BBC, which is, you know, ha <laughs> um, Yeah, that's breaking news. Yeah. I thought he lost his job like six months ago. Look, they said they were, they were I, taking I st- away daily I politics still, or something. I'm still holding true. I've still got the faith. I'm sure that Boris Johnson will have that interview any day now. Any day <laughs> yeah. now. Um, you see, like I pay attention to those news stories, right? And yeah. and and I half and what happens is I half remember them, and I am wondering whether my own immune system mm-hmm. has actually made me do that kind of thing, where I thought this thing happened and then I didn't bother looking into it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like a lack of detail is in many ways my panacea mm-hmm. to have being driven insane. Yeah, but I did pay attention to this story uh, that happened during the week. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's, um, there's that, and I think the Guardian are laying off people. It's um, so you know, like for people, what was going for people who are active in the last election, all those people who are calling us monsters, um, yeah. So you know, fuck them. <laughs> to be honest, the, the funny um, thing is, it's not even it's not even related. It doesn't even it's not even revenge. It's just happening no. as like, yeah. you know, it's just because they're bad at their jobs. <laughs> if they wanted to, <laughs> all I'm saying is, if they wanted to make more money at the Guardian, they maybe should have written better articles. Than, I don't know. Controversial what's opinion. That, what's that one that sticks in my head is the um, Sarah Ditton one about Thomas the Tank Engine. That one sticks in my head. But you know, the, you what was just, that one? There was something about like the tyranny of Thomas the Tank Engine or something. But um, oh right, is that another one where they um, seemingly intentionally and enthusiastically reveal that they're terrible parents and terrible people? Oh yeah, probably. It's they like because it's like that. that sounds like the kind of thing is like my fucking kid, my <laughs> useless three-year-old sitting there watching Thomas the Tank Engine. I want to play Minecraft. <laughs> I want to get on. He just shits everywhere. I can't mop it up. I just can't mop it up quick enough. I'm too busy mopping up my own shit because I've never learned how to use the toilet. He's watching Thomas the Tank Engine all the time, and I need to get on the internet and shout at trans people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's you know, like with the Guardian, it's like, oh no. Oh no, they're not going to be able no, to have please, like. Please don't. Yeah, it's like, what do I care about that fucking? Right, controversial opinion, right? I actually don't think. I mean, it is because they write bad articles, but actually, I don't think the Guardian exists in a state that you could write a good article for it. No, on the rare sure. occasion, there is. There are some good things. There was a good thing by Alex Niven uh, in the Guardian today. Mm-hmm. That is probably that's a once a month thing at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I don't think the Guardian exists in a manner that it can have good articles. So I wouldn't necessarily blame the journalists for that. Yeah, let's not blame John Crace. Yeah. Or all the others. They all look the same, all have the same opinion. Oh, I fucking hate them. It's like all of that. Like, it's, you know, we're on the left. Well, and like, all in, of these places are horrible. Well, it's all right. Now Corbynism is over. We can, it, it, we're just back in that period where, like, they feel like they don't have to know anything. Mm-hmm. They don't have to try anything new. They don't ever have to express a different, a new idea or something fresh. Well, 
Yeah, but even but like when Corbyn was around, there was just um, there it'd be lots of them pretending to not understand a really basic thing. Yeah, that's what I mean. They had to at least employ some contortion to <laughs> kind of pretend that they had a certain principle that they were sticking to. Yeah, a certain social democratic principle, and that this wasn't it. Yeah, you know, like fucking landlords have to accept pets. <laughs> be the policy that lives and dies by <laughs> what a guardian columnist thinks of it you know yeah but anyway okay so speaking of the guardian this yes. article i think nearly everyone has had a go at this article everyone has seen it it's perfect actually it's within a week of this article coming out and them being like oh no we need more money we're all we're all fucked it's just perfect it's just like well there, there's why cause mm. effect um <laughs> Helen Pidd, North of England editor, um, she has talked to some people. Imagine the state would be in if Corbyn had been in charge of the red, have been in charge the view from the red wall. Um, she goes to Lee to talk to some traditional working class voters who do not regret voting Tory. Um, out of these three people, one of them was didn't vote for the Tories because she's sixteen. Listening to Rishi Sunak's summer statement on Wednesday, she asked. Who's going to pay for the spending bonanza? All this money he's putting in to get young people jobs is good, but at some point, surely, he's going to have to get that money back and he will put taxes up. My generation will be the ones to pay for it eventually. That's what I'm scared of. And it's like... I'm sure you are. Yeah. yeah. I remember all those... I, I do remember when I was 16 and I had trenchant opinions on the deficit. <laughs> yep, definitely. Um, it's... She'd voted Labour in mock elections at school in December, she said, but right now she might be more inclined to vote Tory when she goes to the ballot box for real. I'm certain wait. that four years from now she's going to have different fucking... I would hope she'd have different fucking opinions. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Yeah. This is an article... Yep, about uh, people the, the, who the unrepentingly voted Tories. Who unrepentingly voted Tory, and yeah. the first person they find is someone who voted Labour. Yep. Like, let's just pretend that this mock election was representative yep. in some way, because this is also what they like to do. These, This is a way of Helen Pidd avoiding having to actually write editorial in yep. that she, she can just um, put words in people... Well, not put words in people's mouths, but, like, select who she uh, interviews to present a particular... How dare uh, you imply that... that she selects specific people who she knows what exactly what they're going to say before she selected them? The next person... This is the second time he's been in an article of us. <laughs> yeah, this is the Andrew Twenty man, wasn't it? Yep, Andrew Twenty man. He has, he has um, the conservative opinions of twenty men. In Lee Town Centre on Wednesday afternoon, Andrew Twenty man was on the phone sourcing. I can't say that's Nduja. Nduja. It was Nduja sausage. Okay, Nduja. Yeah. Um, for his artisanal pizza parlour, recently reopened at fifty percent capacity, a first-time Tory voter in December's general election. Sunak's hospitality package made him feel massively vindicated for switching his vote from Labour. Can you imagine what state we'd be in if Jeremy Corbyn had been in charge of all this, he asked? I mean, what... what I, I, no, I would like you to spell out what you... Like, isn't this... Hmm. So, the second person... I, I, right. So, f first off, they're, they're talking about how, yeah. like, oh, look, look, the thing, it's a, this is a terrible example because, like, Sunak's thing of giving people money like do you think that if Jeremy Corbyn had an 80 seat majority he wouldn't have furloughed people that yeah, they wouldn't that would have, have given money ideal. to people if, if, if he carried the same kind of 
um, policies and, and vague, vaguely sketched out philosophies into government that he had sketched out in the manifestos, then the government support would have been more comprehensive. There would have been possibly an earlier... No, lockdown. no, no, no. no. Maybe he not. would have demanded they Maybe go they to work been... and do anti-Semitisms. Oh, of course. Damn it. He wouldn't have been able to get people to lock down because he would have been encouraged them to go out in the streets and burn synagogues. Yeah, that's exactly what he would have yeah. do. But this is... Okay, so this is the second person that she's talking to, someone that she's already talked to before, and I think like there's a connection between her and this man's brother, who's a property developer. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of followed <laughs> what was happening on Twitter. So, yeah, she did... These are people who she's revisiting, who Helen Pitt is revisiting. Mm-hmm. And somebody found a tweet where they tweeted that, that she had been to his uh, artisanal pizza parlour and yep. really enjoyed it. And then somebody searched on uh, his Twitter feed, and I think she's a follower of his. And he also has a um, a brother who's a property developer who is one of uh, Helen Pidd's very, very few... Like, is followed by Helen Pidd, yeah. one of the very few. So, yeah, the suspicion is that she just rounded up people who she knew <laughs> and then presented them as off-the-street uh, yeah. people. Now, in a normal era, this might be perhaps a little bit startling to journalistic ethics <laughs> uh, or, you know, just making a good article, making a meaningful article. Who cares if it's, if it's corrupt, if it's yeah. crooked? Just, like, what are you telling me from this? Like, you cannot... I, I, what really drove me insane from all from these these two particularly was like you set up the article with the idea that these are first time Tory voters yep. who are being asked, "Do you have buyer's remorse?" Yeah, and they're working class voters specifically for a trend which we are told happened uh, in the election, right? The Red yep. Wall. Um, the first one didn't vote Tory. I mean, yep. aside from the fact that she can't vote, didn't vote Tory. The second one isn't working class i'm sorry that's not working class and to compound the matter it's almost like reality is insulting the discourse look, from the last two years no look i don't care what, he you, what you're about to say pizza no no he works what was I've all that seen... stuff about performative consumption under corbyn no look. avocados croissants and suddenly it's just like ah yes i'm a typical working class thing and then of course they bring out the other defense which is what a working class person can't enjoy and do just sausage it's like that's literally what people were saying a year ago, yeah. and it, it's all look. It's all cultural bullshit, and ideally, you should be able to ignore this by now. He but is working the fact class, that it's and it is disgusting is... that you would suggest that he isn't. I have seen him work hard, complaining at reviewers on Yelp and Google. Like, what? What is this? Like, I know what this article is supposed to suggest, and it's full culture stuff. Yeah. Because also, assuming that a man like that would, it would be a surprise for him to vote Tory. Like, if it benefits his material, with a property developer, if it if it benefits his material interests, of course he should be fucking voting Tory. Mm. If he's a small businessman who thinks that his the tax break is worth it, of course he should be fucking voting Tory. <laughs> like, why are you voting Labour? I mean, what what are you doing? Mm. How many like? Ah, oh, I just don't... Mm. It's okay, then we go on to the next one, who is, you know, again, a traditional... Like, a, someone who Labour should be winning. Um, it's NHS nurses Keith and Jacqueline Park. Though not... Um, mm-hmm. They are soon to downsize to a nearby bungalow, and the stamp duty cut has come just at the right time. Before this, we were thinking of changing the kitchen in the bungalow, but we weren't sure, It's quite nice, as it's quite nice already. But we now know that we will say, be saving a few thousand pounds. We'll go ahead says Keith, 68. Mm-hmm. He recently retired hmm, 
from the mm-hmm. NHS, where he worked okay. for years as an infectious disease nurse. He felt, felt able to vote Tory only after burying his dad. He'd kill me and said he was primarily motivated by a desire to cut immigration in a borough that is 97% white. Whole sections <laughs> of Lee that are colonised with new entrants, he said in March, claiming that when he used to do contract, contact tracing for TB, almost all the new infections came from asylum seekers from Africa and the Middle East. This really fucking pissed me off. I think I, I, I said, uh, posted about it on Twitter, but um, my mum is a TB nurse. She's been a TB nurse for years. And it is absolutely no surprise that new infections um, largely come from migrant populations in poor quality housing in a- who are from areas who have that. Aside from anything, most TB, TB cases, like new TB cases that are diagnosed are contracted in this country mm-hmm. and largely because of conditions. Yeah. And it's not like... It's presented as, as some, like, um, conspiracy theory, some secret. And it's like, no, it's literally in the NHS guidance on uh, who needs TB inoculations. Well, yeah, because our and, school kids are inoculated. Yeah, and it, I mean? it, like, just strikes me that, it just strikes me that the way that he's saying this, yeah. this guy, um, there's, some, there's something wrong about it because that's not a surprise. That's literally most of TB nurses' work is yeah. to um, get people in for inoculations and make sure they continue with um, treatment if they have if they have TB. There's a whole like patterns of behaviour that are very difficult to do with with like migrate my migrant populations. Are you telling me that a man who's um, main who was primarily desired who's primarily motivated by a desire to cut immigration in a borough that is ninety seven percent white might be racist? Is it, is it just that he doesn't want his borough? Is <laughs> it like fine for everywhere else? Yeah. Um, there's another quote from him that is just fucking disgusting. Think of all the mm. excess deaths we've had from COVID-19. More than 44,000 of them have been in my age group, over 65s. Surely the government has saved money as a result. That's 44,000 fewer <laughs> pensions the government is paying each week. Plus they have probably saved a fortune in care home fees too. I'd like to see that money going into the NHS, not just hospitality. That's that's just a, a just a that's a salt of the earth Labour voter with serious concerns about immigration, conspiracy theories about foreigners, and, and genocidal intentions towards to save his own money. demographic to save money. Oh. <laughs> like the, the like obviously like this being the Guardian, the whole um, uh, thrust of the argument afterwards is that. These are the people Labour need to reach because it always has to come with that hectoring thing about uh, the Labour Party should be our party yeah. and we're just helping you. And in fact, yep. Helen Peard, when she eventually got back on Twitter, said, um, for those alleged Labour supporters who have been trying to get ex-Labour voters in this story cancelled, shame on you. Why not try to understand why Lee went Tory and what it will take to win these folk back instead of piling on? What do you, what do you possibly want <laughs> Labour? Like, with... What what possible policy could Labour introduce that would satisfy Pizza Man um, with seven employees? Yeah. Um, and the man who wants a, a child who's never voted and is concerned about the deficit, and a man who want who believes that his ninety seven percent white borough is being colonised. Like, there's no, <laughs> there's nothing that goes there. There's nothing you can do. No, they're never with, voting Labour. <laughs> Which, like, not only makes the thing useless, but also fucking, you know, there's no, there's no, um, uh, like, analysis of local population, geography, 
demography like they're just assuming that this is um that this is just uh like the terraced houses that you might see in a popular film like billy elliot or something like that that this yeah. is still the the industrial kind of wastelands that they they would like them to be um portrayed as yeah. and like it's also the same week as the story about lester sweatshops coming my partner's from lester yeah. and like all of the interviews i say all of the interviews the couple of interviews that people have been doing with actual working class people with actual migrant labor and all of the streets that they're interviewing them in yeah they look like that but like there's no appreciation of like i don't know lee right i don't know it at all right but i can see it's a suburb of greater manchester and to them that means one thing but like you've been around enough towns that you know not every northern town is just going to be that mm. there are posh bits there are suburbs there are boroughs that have um like that 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 retain money they have like the unspoken thing is here they have retained a middle class and you can see that from the pensioners who own their own home and uh, feel fancy enough to move to another house yeah and the um the the artisanal pizza shop owner yeah and just retreating into cultural tropes yeah that eat themselves the second that you apply even the minutest bit of thought to it is like really shocking like i don't how can you feel good about yourself there's no extra curiosity i did no. see a story today about um the bbc uh director general i think like warning bbc journalists about going on twitter it's like and like i actually fully agree with that it's like why are you on here like <clears throat> you're just sitting here defending defending when you do shoddy work you're just getting really prickly and defensive like it doesn't it doesn't help your career i don't no, want to help they do need career. to be on there rob bell needs to be on there to look for people with england flags in their abbey to invite them onto question time <laughs> and it, i just i don't understand what i don't understand why you would double down yeah. on this because there's no like that it, it's a it's a contradiction you can't you can't reason with that you can't reason with any of these things. I mean, yeah, I'm sure Labour could probably win win back Andy Pizzaman. But is he going to be able to win back his property developer brother? Is no. he going to be able to win back the property developer brother while getting the 16-year-old? Is he going to be able to get the 16-year-old while getting the, um, the uh, whatever, 67-year-old who wants to essentially ban white people, uh, ban um, people of colour? Hmm. Like, what is it that you're saying rather than like no, uh, rather than nodding mm. towards this weird notion that labor have to win everybody why mm. don't you actually report things as they exist yeah rather than rather than just this kind of like sanctification of three people who can't possibly like they can't possibly ever be representative of anything there aren't that many small business people who owe, who employ seven people mm. there aren't that many people who are that virulent racist i hope well, um no. that they won't tolerate three percent of non-white people i i just there's no answers i don't i just don't get it yeah i, I don't i don't get how you can be happy with this kind of job so we're going to finish up talking about Robert Maxwell. Mm -hmm. uh, last week we talked about his kind of his comeback and some of his more clandestine activities. Um, and now we are going to talk about kind of the latter stage of his. There wasn't life. as much about his toilet habits in the last one. And no, that, it's a that shame. Was one of my favourite bits. Maybe he cleaned up. I think his toilet habits was from when he was older, because quite a lot of the kind of real disgusting stories are from when he's. 
actually in kind of the, his imperial phase. This yeah. this and last week's is yeah. uh, when he felt confident enough to shit in front of people. You got to work <laughs> up to it. You can't just uh, you can't just go straight in. No. Um, so in 1988, Robert Maxwell was 65 and at the height of his fame and power. For his 65th birthday, organised by his now estranged wife Betty, 3,000 guests were invited for five separate events over a weekend. Each guest would receive a copy of his self-approved biography, written Amazing. by Joe Haynes, the, the mirror editor who once said he would commit suicide rather than work for Maxwell. Yeah. Maxwell's entrance was heralded by a trumpet fanfare. He wore his military cross, one for bravery in World War II, and the White Rose of Finland, generally only awarded to foreign heads of state by the Finnish state. One guest was heard to remark, just like a bloody foreigner, no one wears his decorations to something like this. Jesus. Hmm. Still there, 1988. Someone mm. still said that. Uh, he was sent birthday wishes by President Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Margaret Thatcher. None attended, despite being invited. Uh, his journals... All How, like, this is the hum- thing. When people say that Britain isn't racist... <laughs> yeah. He's like, like he's... if you've got anything from this thing about this whole thing about Robert Maxwell, is that he took that thing that his mum said to heart about cons- con- like um, acting like an Englishman. Like if you were to look at say me yeah. and him, yeah. he would come off as way more English. Yeah. Um, yeah. His journals, or hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, all published introductions in praise of their great leader and their personal reflections on his greatness. This would be Maxwell's zenith. He had renamed his British Printing and Communications Corporation to the Maxwell Communication Corporation. He owned one of Britain's biggest newspapers, the Mirror Group, and was about to complete a takeover of the publishing giant Macmillan. He had founded a pan-European paper called The European, presumably the forebear of the new European. Hmm. Um, He owned record companies, book labels, video game publishers, Berlitz language schools, 50% of MTV Europe, 20% of Central TV, as well as his own Maxwell Cable TV channel and Maxwell Entertainment. (laughs) He had largely been surpassed by his old rival Murdoch, but he'd done pretty well for a young boy from nowhere. However, in three years, Maxwell would be dead. Personally condemned and his legacy erased, almost nothing of his name or presence would be left. Back in 1985, when he failed to buy the publisher Waddington's, Maxwell had made a bold claim that within five years he would own a global conglomerate with revenues of between three and five billion pounds. Revenues like that would make him one of the wealthiest men on earth. The Mirror devoted pages to this claim. No one at the time asked how profits of $79 million in 1985 would have been able to be multiplied 20 times in five years. In 1989, he bought the gigantic Macmillan Publishing Company for $2.6 billion, as well as the official airline guide for $750 million. This acquisition gave him the status of media mogul. Maxwell had always had an enthusiasm for patterns of behavior and lifestyle that marked you out as a tycoon, as a rich man, particularly to English audiences. In the 50s and 60s, he had been perceived as trying too hard, of being tone deaf to the finer sensibilities that harmonized a powerful man into the ambience of class society. But by the 1980s, everybody else had caught up to him. The supposed democratization of wealth unleashed by supply-side economics had meant an explosion in the kind of public performative consumption that Maxwell had been sniggered at for a decade earlier. Rolls-Royces, champagne, helicopters, mansions, yachts, private planes, Savile Row suits, dinner parties, these had always been a part of the Maxwell image. Twice a month, Maxwell's personal hairdresser, George Wheeler, would be brought in to apply L'Oreal Crescendo, a lotion that concealed all traces of grey hair, 
it cost more than some of his staff's salaries. <laughs> he carried a powder puff everywhere to dab his nose and forehead before meetings, checking in a small silver-framed mirror that no powder traces were visible. He had a belief, similar to Richard Nixon, that any hint of perspiration on his face would make him look desperate. He was a large man, yeah. and to cope with his body odour, a secretary always carried a stick of antiperspirant, which she would slip to him to roll under his armpits. He would do this up to a dozen times a day. The counterpoint to this public flaunting of his wealth was his viciousness to those who reported him in a way he didn't approve. He employed staff to monitor every mention of his name across the world and was ready to correct any perceived errors, whether by a sharply worded letter or a libel action. So like an early but now that he... <laughs> Very much so, yeah. He yeah. literally employed people to name search, yeah. Um, now that he was a titan of business, he started to unleash the full force of mogul mindset, particularly on his employees. One journalist employed by Maxwell recalls being summoned to a Brighton hotel suite during party conference season to find him reclining in his chair like a Roman emperor. He said, I entered the room to see Maxwell in his dressing gown, his pale bare legs shining like porcelain. He lowered an entire bunch of grapes into his mouth, <laughs> then pulled it out again minus the fruit with only the stalks remaining. Okay, that's cool. That's hard as again, well. It's, it's king shit. Yeah. He genuinely acts like a king. Um, one very famous story. Um, a man enraged Maxwell by smoking in a lift and was asked uh, by him, how much do you earn in a year? £18,000, the man replied. Maxwell wrote a cheque for £1,500 and told him he was fired. The man took the cheque and replied, OK, by the way, I work for British Telecom and walked out of the lift. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, another Mirror reporter recounted seeing Maxwell's children coming downstairs to open their presents one Christmas morning, only to find their father sat under the tree, surrounded by discarded wrapping paper. He was unable to resist opening them himself. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Perhaps the most telling anecdote. We've all had a lot of fun, yeah? Yeah. But <laughs> maybe this is the most telling anecdote of uh, Maxwell personally. Um a reporter was alone in the mirror office in the early hours, working a night shift, when Maxwell appeared at his shoulder. Slumping into a chair, he ordered flunkies to bring him a constant supply of food while he chatted to the journalist until dawn. It was only then that I realised how lonely he was, the journalist recalls. Oh. Maxwell would constantly invite the media in to witness his tremendous success. He would showboat for the interviewers, holding conversations in different languages on two different phones simultaneously, while also dictating to a secretary. He encouraged every facet of his life to be photographed and chronicled. His £2 million penthouse in the heart of London was marble-floored, with ceilings supported by Doric columns, which he claimed came from ancient Egypt. The chandeliers, he claimed, had been hand-blown by the finest glassblowers in medieval Italy. The truth was that the columns were hollow, the marble was from a quarry that produced it by the job lot, and the chandeliers were ordered from a reproduction showroom. Chandeliers. His penthouse... Yeah... His penthouse in Maxwell House boasted 50 pound a square inch carpets, overstuffed sofas and bronze and glass coffee tables holding artificial silk flowers. Quote, he always wanted to fill nature around him. <laughs> it also contained a massive fireplace that went nowhere as it was on the 10th floor of an office building in High Holborn. Um, it was also decorated with objects and souvenirs from his globetrotting. On one table was a statue of a shrunken head. Maxwell told guests it was the skull of a victim of Congo cannibalism. It looked like a sculpture. It's to confirm, this is a billionaire tycoon is... and not my primary school friend who said he was training a snake. <laughs> this is Dean Lerner. 
Yes, it is. 100%. That's amazing. Uh, he installed a pad of AstroTurf on top of Maxwell House for his helipad, and his <laughs> private Gulfstream jet had the call sign VR Bob, standing for Very Rich Bob. <laughs> Literally, that's what it stood for. Um, perhaps the most non-criminal thing most people remember Maxwell for was the Million Pound Mirror Bingo giveaway. The Mirror had run a bingo in competition with The Sun for years. Maxwell contracted an advertising agency to invent the most sensational game for his group of newspapers when he had taken The Mirror over. They came up with the Who Dares Wins, which was a play on the SAS motto, of course. Mm -hmm. The game itself was essentially the same bingo game, but with two major differences. The prize would be a million pounds cash, and Maxwell would appear on television in person to introduce the new game with the immortal phrase, I'll make you a millionaire. Maxwell was enthusiastic at the idea of actually giving away a million pounds, thus proving the integrity of his promises and that mm. he really would go further than anyone else to prove his reputation and trustworthiness. And that he had it. Um, <laughs> that he had it. And it didn't ever seem to occur to him that Rupert Murdoch didn't have to appear on telly to sell newspapers. Yeah. Um, the filming of the ad took place in his office at the Mirror Building, where Maxwell would appear and speak directly to the camera. It took him five hours to record a 30-second advert, God. seemingly unable to speak while sitting at a desk, writing a check, and then walking over to a logo board saying, who dares wins? The million-pound bingo was splashed all over three full pages in the mirror, relegating the minor strike to the back pages. <laughs> However, he would still be beaten into second place by the competition. Word had leaked out before the announcement as to what the Mirror was planning, and the Sun had launched an identical million-pound campaign. Five days after the Mirror launch, the Sun had its first bingo millionaire, beating the Mirror. On television, Maxwell barely hid his frustration behind gritted teeth, saying that imitation was the sincerest form of flattery. Although he had always come up with the idea to boost sales and he had attached his image to it, he hadn't been first. He hadn't been singular. This is what Maxwell always strived to be. He had the ideas, he had the drive, but he felt it was always his reputation that had been the problem. The problem was essentially people outside himself, people who couldn't, he couldn't control or, or affect how they saw him, yeah. which is a little bit psychopathic. <laughs> um, his solution to his reputation problem was naturally to make more personal appearances. Uh, with his personal photographer, he would fly around the world, concluding deals, putting them in the mirror, and then stopping to meet a president or two. For example, upon news of the famines in Ethiopia, Maxwell chartered a jet on a mercy mission to Addis Ababa, setting himself up as the official famine spokesman for Britain. I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, it was quite bewildering when he stepped off the tarmac and met the actual British ambassador. Um, the aid he shipped was estimated to have satisfied about 12 minutes of emergency need. Um, it wasn't just papers he was into. Uh, he had acquired interest in a number of developing sectors. He bid for Sinclair Computers, and he also formed Fleetway Publications, which published 2000 AD for a time. He also acquired a games publisher called Mirasoft. Now, Mirasoft had acquired the Hungarian software reseller Andromeda. Andromeda had been negotiating for the rights to publish the seminal puzzle game Tetris with its creator, Alexei Pajitnov, and had secured the rights to publish on home computers, but that agreement didn't cover consoles, handhelds, or arcade machines. They may have been unaware of this at the time, as uh, obviously uh, the game was invented in, in Russia. IP rights and copyrights were tricky to negotiate in the USSR. Mm -hmm. Nintendo had approached Elog, the Russian software agency that kind of determines uh, IP and copyright, approached them about making a handheld version of Tetris. 
Uh, Robert Maxwell was furious at this and went straight to the top. He lodged complaints with the British and Russian governments and spoke with Mikhail Gorbachev, directly claiming the rights to Tetris for Mirosoft. Gorbachev fobbed him off, saying he didn't need to worry about the Japanese company, and Nintendo retained the rights for handheld Tetris, which would become the most famous iteration of the game and one of the best-selling games of all time. Again, he had had the thing in his grasp, but had been foiled by details and other people. Yeah. In any case, Gorbachev had bigger things to worry about in the 80s than Tetris, if you can believe that. Just the um, idea had... that Gorbachev's dealing with all the shit that you're having in, like, in Russia at that time. <laughs> and there's Robert Maxwell constantly ringing him, demanding the access to Tetris. <laughs> if I could only get the five square. <laughs> um, the five line. Um, Four line. Gorbachev obviously was involved with Perestroika and Glasnost in the USSR. And for Maxwell personally, this started to disrupt his carefully placed web of, of contacts within the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. I mean, he'd been involving himself with the unravelling Warsaw Pact countries for years, treading a fine line between anti-communism that would play in the West and maintaining good relations with their ageing leaders, with often hilarious results. For instance, in 1985, the Daily Mirror proclaimed uh, his visit to Poland as a chance for him to sort out the mess caused by the conflict between the Polish government and solidarity. Um... He met with General Jaruzelski, the Polish military leader. Um, after his trip, he announced in a radio interview that the solidarity problem has been solved. My newspapers will be devoting less space to the protesters. <laughs> uh, as a side note, he also dropped off another copy of uh, Promise, which was the <laughs> software we talked about in the last episode. So, you know, it wasn't a, a complete waste. Uh, Maxwell presented... Maxwell presented the East German leader Erich Honecker in a stage-managed ceremony, in a stage-managed ceremony, with two leather-bound Pergamon volumes of the Encyclopedia of the German Democratic Republic, priced at 110 pounds per set. His timing wasn't great, as the Berlin Wall fell just a month later. <laughs> as the Soviet bloc collapsed and countries moved from the Soviet orbit, Maxwell will be asked to explain what his relationship was with the communist bloc. He would say that he indispensably contributed to saving Eastern Europe. Nice. He added that the series of autobiographies by the communist tyrants always included disclaimers. <laughs> no police state? No police state. <laughs> um, he asked rhetorically to the interviewer, have you ever made a mistake? I regret not saying publicly how critical I was to their faces. He then went on to claim that he had actually never had much business with the Eastern Bloc anyway. Over 40 years, he said, I only sold a few books and journals. The profits earned were 0.001% of my business. Oh, and it was done at the request of the US government. <laughs> um, he also said, I did no business with Eastern Europe before the Berlin Wall came down, which was a mm. staggering lie, yeah. considering his trips to literally everywhere in the Eastern Bloc, his business with Bulgaria, and also ignoring his own company's public accounts yeah. that were just in public. You could prove, disprove it with one look at them. Maxwell did try to make the most of his relationship with Gorbachev. Uh, he bought the English-language Moscow News, which was a reformist newspaper supportive of Perestroika. And Maxwell was also apparently furious with the editor of The Mirror when a cartoon appeared of a paratrooper attacking a cameraman with Stalin looming over Gorbachev's shoulder saying, now that's the way to do it, Mikhail, after Gorbachev sent troops to put down a nationalist revolt in Lithuania. He also appeared alongside Gorbachev in 1990 to create a $100 million Gorbachev-Maxwell Institute to unite scientists from East and West. 
After a ream of headlines and photo ops and an official lunch, Maxwell simply didn't pay his half of the promised $50 million. <laughs> Real easy. Um, he also tried to align himself to this new state of affairs, this new kind of reform situation that was in the Soviet Union. According to Charles Powell, Margaret Thatcher's secretary, Maxwell visited Thatcher in March of 1990 to advocate for a loan request, request of $20 billion to prop up the ailing Soviet economy, saying that without it, there was no way Gorbachev's reforms, reforms would survive. No doubt, had he arranged the $20 billion loan, he would have received some share of it, uh, in the end, Thatcher refused the loan. This also might have helped towards something else that he was planning. Um, according to some sources, Maxwell had been hoping to broker a deal with Gorbachev whereby he would handle the trillions of dollars in foreign debts the Soviet Union had accrued with a 15% commission, similar to the deal he had worked out yeah. in Bulgaria. Now, this might have been classic Maxwell overreaching, and it might never have happened, but can you imagine as Maxwell as post-Soviet Russia's financier, the amount of money and assets and things that were seized or transferred abroad after the collapse of communism and Maxwell having a hand in that. Yeah. It, that's insane amount of monies. Mm -hmm. That's so much money. <laughs> Maxwell had a particularly good relationship with Vladimir Kriuchkov, the KGB chairman. The two had met in the 70s when Kriuchkov had been head of the Foreign Intelligence Directorate, the foreign branch of the KGB. He had negotiated with, Maxwell had negotiated with Kruchkov to allow visas for Jews to emigrate from Russia to Israel, and his efforts have been very successful, allowing some 300,000 Soviet Jewish citizens to emigrate. He would send gifts to Kruchkov's office in the Lubyanka for years, a cashmere coat, a set of solid gold cufflinks, the latest hi-fi set, a box of opera recordings. Every, re every week, without fail, the British Airways flight from London to Moscow carried a crate of vintage Scotch whiskey or Krug champagne destined for Kriuchkov's office. Mm. It was Kriuchkov who had first brief also first briefed the Bulgarian minister Andrei Lukanov, Maxwell's co-partner in the Never Project that we talked about last week, mm. uh, telling Lukanov that he was a rich, important man who he should keep an eye on. Kriuchkov was a true believer in communism despite the solid cold cufflinks and the <laughs> shipments of champagne. Yeah. Um, while he was kind of appreci he appreciated the need for reform, he wasn't happy about Gorbachev's direction of travel. He apparently asked for Maxwell's help in a scheme that would allow the Communist Party to survive the end of the Russian state. It involved setting up 600 KGB front companies in the West, where they would operate as normal businesses. His idea was that in an uncertain and fluid political situation, the KGB's assets could be hidden under the noses of their enemies, providing capitalist training and expertise, as well as a working knowledge of Western institutions, and providing an income for loyal communists. And it would also provide money that the KGB and the Communist Party could draw upon for a counter-revolution against Gorbachev's reforms in the future. He had seen Maxwell hiding his money in Bulgaria away from prying eyes and wanted to know how it could be done. Sometime in early August 1991, allegedly, Kriuchkov pressed Maxwell for a secret meeting aboard the Lady Ghislaine yacht regarding what was to be done about Gorbachev. On August the 20th, 1991, Gorbachev had been intending to sign a treaty proclaiming a new confederation of states as an attempt to stop the tide of communist countries that were declaring national sovereignty and independence on their own. However, on the 18th of August, the hardliners in the KGB and army, led by Kriuchkov and others in the Politburo, initiated a coup against Gorbachev. He was imprisoned at his dacha and stripped of the nuclear codes. Thousands of troops entered Moscow. 
However, Kriuchkov and the coup plotters failed to arrest opposition leaders like Boris Yeltsin. Yeltsin had contact with the Americans and led a mass result and led a mass revolt of Muscovites against the coup. The famous, you know, the famous image of Yeltsin standing on top of the tank addressing yeah. a crowd. That's yeah. what that's from. By the 21st of August, the coup was over and the plotters went into hiding. Um, Kruchkov was arrested, and when he was languishing in prison, he smuggled a message out asking Maxwell to talk to Gorbachev to ask for mercy. Maxwell never did. In fact, Maxwell publicly denounced the plot, and later the British Prime Minister, John Major, would remark that Maxwell had given him valuable insights into the coup, without ever really talking about what those valuable Mm. insights were. After he was reinstalled, Gorbachev understandably decided to reorganize the KGB that had tried to overthrow him. Uh, Part of this was also opening its archives. Now, Maxwell would have been well aware that sitting in the KGB archives that were now being opened and studied, there were hundreds of hours of transcripts of him with Kriuchkov, of Kriuchkov's complaints about the perestroika, and of him trying to arrange meetings in secret with Maxwell. Uh, There was also particularly a record of Maxwell trying to set up a meeting between a Mossad liaison and the KGB to smooth the transition in diplomatic relations between the perestroika USSR and Israel. Russia had cut off diplomatic relations with Israel in 1967 in protest at the Six-Day War, but Viktor Ostrovsky, the Mossad whistleblower, alleges there was an attempt at a deal that if Israel agreed to recognize Kriuchkov's coup and his new government in return all the soviet jewish population would be released or expelled to israel hmm. no seriously they used the language expelled they would say they would just they would just expel them and because they couldn't wouldn't be able to no other countries wouldn't be able to absorb the number of refugees that yeah. they would all go to israel um at the same time, Mossad observers stationed within the Maxwell Communication Corporation began to warn the agency of Maxwell's precarious financial position He had started to sell the companies that had given him such adulation in Israel, creating unemployment during a recession. Mossad leadership had also transitioned at this time from Nahum Admanai, who had known Maxwell for years, Mm -hmm. to Shabtai Shavit, who was more suspicious of him, and with good reason. Um, Passing information, being lauded as a visiting dignitary, all the flaunting of the power and everything, even making money off the back of their operations, these could all be tolerated for kind of an agent of, of Maxwell's standing. Yeah. They were all excusable. They were part of the Maxwell brand. They were probably what made him attractive as an asset to begin with. But Israel was terrified of instability in the USSR, of all that nuclear material falling into the hands of its enemies. And for Maxwell to be involved in a high-level diplomatic incident where he was arranging things with the head of the KGB who had just done a coup, Hmm. uh, as well as the things we covered last week, his increasing connections with organized crime, with um, dodgy things in Bulgaria and Russia and beyond... If he was ever in a compromised financial situation, what might Maxwell do in that situation? What might he reveal? Uh, Well, we're about to find out. (laughs) Because uh, at the same time, Maxwell's business empire was crumbling. Uh, As mentioned earlier, in order to make good on his boast of being worth $10 billion by 1990, he had bought the gigantic Macmillan Publishing Company for $2.6 billion and the official airline guide for $750 million. That's the printed like airline timetable thing before it was all on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, He had overpaid for for Macmillan by uh, well over a billion dollars and similarly was overextended on the official airline guide. And his loan repayments on those two investments alone were around $300 million a year. 
the pieces, these were the pieces of Maxwell's empire that had made him an international tycoon that scratched that itch that drove him. And they were terrible decisions. But he did have reason to believe things were fine. Although his debts were approaching $3 billion in total, they were tiny compared to those of Rupert Murdoch. And unlike Murdoch, Maxwell had never missed a payment up until that point. However, by 1990, his total bank repayments had reached a staggering £415 million a year. I'm going to try and outline Maxwell's kind of financial situation as simply as I can. It's incredibly confusing. Um, lots of like shared, dodgy share dealing and using things as collateral and things like that. But I'm going to try and explain it as simply as I can. So to service his debts and fund expansion of his empire, he would use MCC company shares as collateral for loans. As long as those MCC shares continue to rise, he could keep using them as collateral and the banks would continue to lend him money based off that. Mm -hmm. To keep the share price high, he persuaded Goldman Sachs to buy MCC shares and sell them on to make the shares seem more desirable and thus raise the price. However, the shares weren't actually going to any clients. They were being bought by Maxwell's own anonymous companies. Maxwell was legally forbidden from buying his own shares um, in certain periods of the year, like before they announced their yearly results. Yeah. Goldman Sachs should legally have refused to buy the shares and then sell them on. Uh, but Maxwell had guaranteed to them that the shares would be sold through his trusts in Liechtenstein, the Virgin Islands, and Gibraltar, and then he would buy them back so that they wouldn't be left with a whole pile of, uh, of, of MCC shares. He had always set up three or four redundant company names every time he bought a new asset, and this was why he had plenty of companies that could just be anonymous and buy those shares. Goldman Sachs earned commission either way, which may have influenced their decision somewhat. Um, Maxwell didn't even end up buying the shares back from Goldman Sachs as he promised, because unbeknownst to Goldman Sachs, he was also using those same shares bought by his own trust and companies as collateral for other bank loans. To an outside objective observer, these shares were owned by him, owned by Goldman Sachs. They were ownership, collateral and assets all at the same time. And he kept doing this for years and years. It was a vicious cycle. He kept recycling shares, not paying for them, and then using them as collateral for more loans, sometimes to buy back the previously sold shares and retain <laughs> legal ownership of the Maxwell Corporation. There was one huge source of untapped wealth that, that existed to kind of be fed into this cycle, uh, the pension funds of the Mirror Group. It's probably what he's still remembered for, it's probably the most famous thing he's ever done. the only thing I knew about him. Yeah. Um, he had already been using the pension money um, uh, without the knowledge of the participants to invest in companies he did not own and therefore could not withdraw the money at the request of the pensioners, which was pretty illegal. Um, in 1984, when he bought the Mirror, the pension fund possessed way more cash than was legally required. Maxwell had realized that as an employer, he would no longer have to pay contributions for some, for some time, allowing the use of that money for other purposes. Um, the ownership of the fund was supposed to be independent, but Maxwell had removed the trade unionists from the trustees of the pension fund and replaced them with his sons, Kevin and Ian. 80% of the fund management had been taken over by Bishopsgate Investment Management, a Maxwell-owned financial management <laughs> company. The remaining 20% was also managed by another Maxwell-owned company. These managers uh, had taken the decision that the pension fund should be invested in, guess what, other <laughs> Maxwell-owned companies. <laughs> When uh, whistleblowers tried to put these concerns to the IMRO, the government agency responsible for regulating this kind of stuff, stuff, they seemed assured by Maxwell's lawyers that the MCC was a good and proper investment for the <laughs> fund's stability. 
just fine. It's you just know, normal. Just fine. Normal stuff. Uh, essentially, Maxwell would basically plug this money into the cycle that he was already doing. Bishopsgate would sell the certificates to banks, and the Maxwell would, Maxwells would just keep the money rather than putting it back into the pension fund as they should have. It's estimated that Maxwell raised around 200 to 600 million pounds by using the pension shares as collateral. However, to put this in perspective, Maxwell could have stolen all the money in the Mirror Pension Fund and it wouldn't have lasted him more than about a couple of years with mm. the rate his debts were growing. Mm. The complexity of this is kind of testified by the fact that after Maxwell's death, it took the FBI, ME5 and other agencies years to unravel exactly where and how Maxwell moved money around. It's commonly supposed that it will never be fully accounted for. That's, so, that's insane. Yeah, that's the uh, that's that's the system working, right? That's yeah. that, that's Maxwell's Maxwell's got a system. He's going to the bookies, but he's got a system. He yeah. knows he knows what's going to happen. In 1991, everything broke. In the summer of 91, Britain and the US's economies had gone into full recession, and Japan's long boom was coming to an end. By July 1991, the linchpin of his fraud, MCC shares, began to fall in price. They had become 60% lower than two years previously and his bankers started to ask for further securities on their loans. He tried buying his shares again to raise the price, but the price just kept dropping. He tried to restore confidence by hinting at the billions he had stored away in trusts in Liechtenstein. His creditors asked for proof. There was none, and the shares kept dropping. Maxwell decided to face his creditors head on. He summoned bank chairmen one by one to Maxwell House, where he instructed his secretary in front of them to not disturb him unless it's Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> Power play. Yep. Uh, the vintage of champagne served depended on the prestigiousness of his visitors. Fantastic. Krug and Cristal for Lloyds and Goldman Sachs. Mum and Paul Roger for the lesser banks. I don't know what he repeated this. Uh, one's more expensive. Yeah, <laughs> um he repeated the same lines he did whenever anyone questioned him. There is nothing to worry about. Every one of their questions was answered with a blizzard of cash flow projections, balance sheets, and estimates. Maxwell seemed to have prepared an answer for every one of their concerns. They didn't really look into them closely. They weren't real answers. And astoundingly, they believed him. They continued lending money. Through July, however, the turbulence spread internally. The IMRO had visited Kevin Maxwell while his father was away, and had managed, while he had managed to fob them off, the MCC directors were now asking questions. Some were threatening to resign and go public unless Robert Maxwell met with them. He called Kevin and his other son, Ian, down to the yacht to discuss their next action, and to bring $20,000 with them as the wages of the crew were overdue. Kevin came with $20,000 cash and more bad news. A further repayment on a £30 million loan was due in seven days, and 60 banks had turned down servicing the loan. Maxwell would tell Kevin that he had a trusted friend in the National Westminster Bank that could loan him £150 million. All he needed was another 20 million shares from the Mirror Pension Scheme and 2 million shares from another Maxwell company, Cytex. By Monday, however, two Mirror Pension Fund managers were calling to demand proof that Maxwell actually owned the shares that they hadn't been promised to someone else. Yeah. They actually wanted to see the physical share certificates from Kevin Maxwell's safe. Maxwell informed them that using shares as collateral is a normal function in the business world. The fund managers just accepted this. They just <laughs> were happy with that. They just went away. Maxwell eventually got his £150 million loan on the proviso that he put up the £2 million pension shares, obviously, and that he lodged £130 million in cash with NatWest. The money never appeared. 
He's such a great bullshit merchant. Yeah. One Maxwell scheme was to tell Citibank that MCC had millions of dollars in their New York bank accounts from the sale of shares, and he wanted to convert those into sterling. Uh, to speed the process along, these things are often kind of done uh, on credit, if you like. So mm-hmm. one part of the process might transfer money before the other. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they have to check. But Citibank transferred £20 million to London. Um, but in reality, the shares didn't exist. They had already been used, or sold on and used elsewhere. That just staggering. Mm. You may have noticed this far that every time Maxwell's confronted by people he owes money, the anecdote just sorts of ends with him saying, and they just believe him and go away. Yeah. This was a pattern towards the end of his uh, business empire. And it raises several questions. Like this wasn't the city that he had clashed with in the seventies. It wasn't a gentleman's club constrained by club rules. It was now supposedly an aggressively efficient, like bear pit where where personality was overruled by ruthless, hard headed cynicism. And I have several theories about why he was offered so much leeway, but I mean, some of his PR may have worked. Mm -hmm. He was so good at projecting the image of the successful man. It may have enhanced his fraud to the point where it just worked. Mm -hmm. They genuinely believed he was about to, he was a genius who was about to turn things around and they were going to get paid. He had form for that kind of turnaround and there was always more commission to earn whether his from his mistakes or his successes so don't ask too many questions his accountants cooper and lyland were excoriated after the empire's fall that is they were excoriated eight years after the empire's fall in 1999 when they had merged into price waterhouse cooper and everybody responsible for the maxwell account had just left But I think the most convincing reason why he never had any realistic accountability is that his bankruptcy never really offered any advantage to his creditors. When the banks would try and force Maxwell to let auditors to look at his books, Maxwell would just straight up refuse. The bankers would accept this, reasoning that if he didn't want to expose his accounts, that must mean he had hidden money to pay them, something lying in some offshore trust. And so if they left him to it, they would eventually get their money. They just relented every time. Even if, I think, from their part, maybe even if he didn't have the money or any means of getting it, he was so far integrated into this complex net of transactions and half-truths. Like that speech from Wolf of Wall Street, the Matthew McConaughey speech, Mm. while Maxwell was in play to the observer, the money existed. If you grounded him to check what he had, Mm. that Schrodinger's money evaporated. So it was better to kind of keep the ball rolling because there was always the risk that he didn't have the money. Yeah. Um, Maxwell's debts were spiraling by now, approaching the national debt of some countries, and the juggling act required to keep it all in the air had to be done faster and faster, from shares to pensions to loans to assets, and the stream of promises was starting to cross. On the 15th of August, the Financial Times revealed that Goldman Sachs was sitting on a colossal 143 million MCC shares as collateral for their loans. This turned the rumours that had been going around the city for months public. Bankers started to turn up directly at Maxwell House, uninvited, demanding payment. Kevin Maxwell turned them away, telling each set of bankers the same story, that their repayment was on the way, raised by selling 7 million shares in the Israeli company Cytex. He was also promising these assets. He told the same story to every bank and was promising the same assets to to different banks. But there we are. (laughs) MCC directors were on the verge of quitting and going public. Maxwell ordered that his retired chief constable head of security, John Pohl, bug their home phones. Pohl just ignored the order. 
the phone calls never stopped day or night with bank directors turning up with collateral shares that were no longer worth the amount of the loan. One creditor told Kevin Maxwell, you're dead if we don't get our 50 million back. The constant pressure started to impact Maxwell's health and infamous energy level. His relentless pace started to slow. He became erratic, missing appointments, accepting invitations and not showing, leaving piles of mail lying around the house, very out of character for the usually perfectionist Maxwell. He developed a tendency to suddenly fall asleep, mouth agape in the middle of meetings. When his doctors asked him if he had been taking any medication, he said no. In, actual, in actuality, he had been taking a combination of Halcyon and Xanax, which is not good. <laughs> not good for your concentration and general, general health. By the autumn, the banks had finally had enough and began to collaborate with each other. Sick of Maxwell playing them off against each other, they chose Tuesday the 29th of October as their make-or-break day. They hatched a coordinated assault on Maxwell headquarters. Spearheading the assault, Credit Suisse turned up at Maxwell House in the morning of October 29th to meet with Kevin Maxwell, with proof that the shares pledged to the bank were fraudulent, as they had already been promised to other banks. Lehman Brothers were next, threatening to immediately sell the shares they held at fire sale prices. Then came the Swiss Bank Corporation. They threatened to inform the Department of Trade and Industry and the fraud squad of their duplicity. Finally, Goldman Sachs turned up, then threatened to sell all of the MCC shares they had held from his earlier scam to inflate the share price. Kevin was told he had 24 hours to find the money. Kevin didn't need to report this back to his father, as Robert Maxwell had been hiding from them and his own directors in another part of the building, listening to their panic conversations with Kevin through a speaker system. <laughs> um, according to uh, author of Israel, uh, Maxwell Israel Super Spy, Gordon Thomas, at this time, Maxwell contacted Mossad, uh, demanding £400 million be transferred into MCC accounts to avoid bankruptcy and the obvious implication that if they didn't, he would tell everything. Everything from now on is largely from Gordon Thomas's account. As I mentioned last week, he is quite a prominent Mossad uh, historian. Mm -hmm. uh, he's talked to a lot of whistleblowers, some of whom might be on the level, some who might not. But if you were going to go to someone for this kind of thing, this account is kind of where you would go for yeah. kind of properly evidenced uh, conspiracy shit. Mm -hmm. So just bear that in mind. Okay, as we're going into the last bits with Rob Maxwell, obviously we discuss suicide quite a bit. So if you don't want to hear that, turn off now. So on the same day that he was listening to his son Kevin being eaten alive by creditors, the 29th of October, he apparently received a phone call on his private line saying it was from the Israeli embassy in Madrid. He was instructed to fly to Gibraltar, board the Lady Ghislaine, and sail for Madeira. He was told his situation had been carefully studied in Tel Aviv and that there was no reason to panic. Maxwell had his traditional weekly lunch with the Mirror Group editors, where he told them that Rupert Allison and George Galloway, the MPs who had read aloud <laughs> in Parliament allegations of his clandestine connections, would rue the day they trifled with him. The Lady Ghislaine had been prepped for a three-week journey to New York. He had bought it in 1987 for £12 million from Imad Khashoggi of the famous-slash-infamous Khashoggi family, Adnan oh, yeah. Khashoggi, the arms dealer, and Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist murdered by Saudi agents in 2018. The 180-feet yacht was usually staffed by 13 people plus a captain, but Maxwell reduced the staff complement by one, so it carried 13, his lucky number. On the evening of the 30th of October, 
the news came in that they would not be travelling to New York at all. The captain, checking up on the tycoon's notoriously erratic movements, phoned the tycoon's pilots, who said they were flying to Gibraltar early the next morning. When the captain tried to confirm their destination, Maxwell was nowhere to be found. No one would ever know where Maxwell was on the night of Wednesday the 30th of October. He was in London, but he it was incredibly odd hmm. that he would go completely missing. Maxwell kept phones on him all the time. He was always in touch with some accountant, lawyer, or business partner. Someone somewhere always knew where he was. But on this night, before he was due to fly to Gibraltar to carry out the instructions given to him by an anonymous phone call, hmm. he was nowhere to be found. The next morning at 5.30, the captain tried the penthouse at Maxwell House again. Maxwell answered. He would not be bringing his butler or his personal secretary on the trip. This, too, was very odd, comparable to him travelling without a suitcase. The captain's log noted Maxwell boarded the Lady Ghislaine at 1.15pm on Thursday the 31st of October. Maxwell ordered his yacht to sail towards Madeira, and according to the captain, received two phone calls, one from Kevin and one where the caller had not given his name. Maxwell received the call where the person hadn't given their names straight to his bedroom. He reappeared in a cheerful mood and disembarked at Funchal in Madeira with the ship's second officer, Mark Atkins, a police, an ex-policeman. Maxwell clambered into a taxi and asked the driver to take him to the Reed Palace Hotel, leaving Atkins in the taxi. 30 minutes later, Maxwell reappeared and asked the driver to take him to a bar. There, Maxwell and Atkins sat in silence, drinking beer. By Saturday the 2nd of November, the creditors had finally acted on their threats. Lehman Brothers had seized shares in Maxwell Companies as compensation, and Goldman Sachs had dumped 2 million shares in the open market. Maxwell reboarded the Lady Ghislaine from Funchal, asking the captain to take him to, quote, some other place, and he retreated to the sun deck. <laughs> he stopped getting the onto yacht my yacht and telling the captain, dealer's choice. <laughs> just, just sail. Um, he stopped the yacht to swim in the ocean, completely naked, and anchored himself to a large rubber ring, as he sometimes did. He also wore a life jacket when he went swimming in the sea. Hmm. When he went swimming in the sea, he phoned through to his pilot, um, asking him to pick his sons up and fly them to his location. Ten minutes later, he cancelled the order. Then he ordered the yacht back to Madeira. You may be noticing that his movements don't seem exactly ordered or thought out. Mm -hmm. Was he giving orders to, in excess to re-exert control? Was he unable to decide between different options? Was he it, having anxiety? Mm. I don't know. But on board, his rages became more frequent. The chef couldn't cook his food right. He was getting angry at the speed they were going at. And he even yelled at the Funchal port authorities when they asked the Ghislaine to slow down as it came into port. Once again, moored in Funchal... He went to the casino. He gambled and won a little money. He came back aboard and said he was thinking of going back to London and that the yacht was to, yacht was to proceed to New York after he had left. The next morning, a Sunday, he informed the captain he would not be going to London after all. He plotted with the captain where they should go next, and together they chose the Canary Islands. <clears throat> back in London, longtime Maxwell ally, foreign affairs editor and Mossad arms dealer slash MI6 source <laughs> Nick Davies had been ousted by the new editor Richard Stott and was escorted from the building by two security guards. Davies had contacted Maxwell on the yacht and he had told him to keep his head down and that he would meet him on the following Friday, November 8th. Once again at sea, Maxwell suggested that once in Tenerife, he would be again fl uh, flying back to London. The yacht captain ordered the Gulfstream jet 
routed to Madeira in case Maxwell had wanted to fly back to do a flyover of the yacht in the Atlantic before turning to Tenerife, where it expected to pick Maxwell up. Maxwell spoke on the phone to his French lawyer, Samuel Pizar, where he learned that he was going to be given the Légion d'honneur, the highest decoration <laughs> the French state could bestow from Francois Mitterrand close personal friend he was also due to give a speech to the anglo-israeli society the following night and asked pizar for advice on his speech back in london on monday the 4th of november mcc's dirty secrets were out in the open maxwell's sons were forced to start selling companies pergamon the cornerstone of his empire for 40 years had gone for 440 million pounds cytex was gone for 120 million pounds his mtv shares gone for 40 million and so on Kevin had scheduled a meeting with the Bank of England over Maxwell's £500 million default from Goldman Sachs. Maxwell responded that he would not be giving the Anglo-Israeli speech that night, as he needed a couple more days. He ignored his son's attempts to explain how dire the financial situation was, to the point where the two developed a screaming row. As the Lady Ghislaine approached the port of Santa Cruz in Tenerife, Maxwell's anger appeared to have subsided, and the crew described him as almost preternaturally calm. He told the pilot who met him there that he would be flying to London the next day. Although, quote, events may dictate that I have to go to New York or Jerusalem. He received a phone call from his son, Ian, saying that the speech his estranged wife, Betty, who he had browbeaten into giving the Anglo-Israeli dinner in his absence, uh, had gone well. Betty was a historian of the Holocaust and had organized conferences on furthering Jewish-Christian relations. So it wasn't, yeah. you know, she was... She was equipped to give it. Yeah. Maxwell discussed no business with his son. Maxwell ordered the yacht to circle the island to find a secluded spot so that he could again go swimming. They found a cove, and again Maxwell got into the sea to swim naked. He was only in the water a few minutes before coming out, saying he found it too cold. Later eyewitness reports from a local fisherman noted a small motorised yacht that bore no flag or name that seemed to be following the Lady Ghislaine as it toured the waters around Tenerife. On the evening of the 4th of October, he settled down to sleep. He asked the chief stewardess to lock his bathroom door adjacent to his study, something he had never asked for before. He then locked himself in the bedroom. The captain issued an instruction to the night duty officer to call him if any craft showed up on radar within five miles. Later, the captain would never explain what he meant by this instruction. Hmm. At 4.25 a.m., an engineer came up on deck to check the engines. There were never usually any watchmen up on deck on the Lady Ghislaine, and the security cameras were switched off. This was per normal when they were at sea. Yeah. The engineer saw Robert Maxwell standing in his blue striped nightshirt next to the door to his stateroom. Maxwell had a habit of going up on the side deck for fresh air or to piss over the side at night, as it was a security King. camera blind spot, King. even if they had been switched on. King shit, yes. Maxwell told the engineer that he wanted the air conditioning in his room turned up. At 4.45, Maxwell phoned down to the bridge to say that his room was now too cold. This was the last contact Maxwell would have with a crew member. What happened next is a mystery. What we know for certain is that the following morning, the Lady Ghislaine had anchored outside Los Cristianos on Tenerife. At 10.30, a call came through from Rothschild's bank demanding to speak to Maxwell. At 11, another call came through from Macmillan Publishers. The captain rang through to Maxwell's room, but received no answer. When he still wasn't answering by 1.15pm, the captain went through and let himself into Maxwell's rooms. The sheet was crumpled, and Maxwell's nightshirt lay on the floor. The engineer recounted to the captain how he had seen Maxwell earlier in the morning, note, still wearing his nightshirt. 
News filtered out that Maxwell was missing, presumed dead. The MCC shares had taken a battering over the last 24 hours, and millions had been wiped off their value. The stock markets, the stock markets ceased trading at 3 p.m. At 3.05, the press association announced Robert Maxwell was missing at sea. At 5.25 p.m., a report came in that a fisherman had seen a body floating in the water. Maxwell's body was recovered by helicopter. He was found naked, face upwards, arms extended, feet together. He had been in the water approximately 12 hours. There are three possible options for how Maxwell ended up in the water. Accident, suicide or murder. An accident seems unlikely. <clears throat> the engineer who disturbed Maxwell would say that he could not have had like a health episode, like a heart attack and fallen in, as the railings on the side of the deck he was on were too high for him to have fallen. He was about 20 stone at the time of his death, and to put it delicately, he was bottom heavy. <laughs> uh, if he had had a medical episode, he would have fallen on the deck and stayed there. The pathologist who examined the body originally in Tenerife said he believed it was a heart attack. Uh, there were no marks on his body other than some blood coming from his nose, which meant that he wouldn't have banged the side as he fell. Mm -hmm. uh, he also had no signs of heart disease, um, and there were no marks on his chest from slumping against the wire railing and then fall, like pirouetting over. Yeah. Um, similarly, he couldn't have accidentally fallen. The sea that night was calm, and he would have had to be sprinting and jumping like over a hurdle in order to have made the, made the leap over the railings. Suicide is the other option and is obviously more likely. Obviously, the stress level of stress and failure in Maxwell's immediate future was huge. Some of his behavior, the erratic mood swings, and then the sudden calmness of the final day or so, mm. maybe it could be interpreted as him coming to a certain decision, him touring around Tenerife to find a swimming spot was him doing a test run. Mm. I, you know, I don't know. Perhaps, you know, psychologically, he saw no way out. There was nowhere. I mean, there was really nowhere other than maybe Israel that he could go into exile that would yeah. be a, a home to him. His relations with foreign countries were performative. Where would he go in the world where he wouldn't be shamed, where he wouldn't be treated like a fallen king? Did any of them really appreciate him or did they just appreciate his money and connections? Hmm. Did he have any real friends at all? Certainly ones who would look upon him the same after he had lost everything. On the other hand, uh, Tom Bauer quotes that a, a man who had stormed the beaches of Normandy was unlikely to have felt much fear about anything else ever again. He could definitely be a lonely man and given to strong expressions of the main emotions. But does anything I've said about Maxwell over the past three episodes suggest that the shame of bankruptcy would be something that he couldn't face? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like he didn't have any money at all. Yeah, He'd spent it's not decades like he hadn't hiding been publicly money. shamed either and yeah. been treated like shit by all these people before. Yeah, it, he had been hiding money in tax havens for years. It seems unlikely he would have been completely destitute. Yeah, And also, court cases, especially financial ones, take years. And there was yeah. no guarantee that he wouldn't be able to dodge it somehow, like he had done so often previously. Mm. And those who knew him said that Maxwell was macho about suicide, and he insisted it was the coward's way out. In addition, no suicide note was found, which strange considering the circumstances but seems out of character yeah for a man who like has photos of everything yeah rec like rec like records everything yeah the original autopsy done in tenerife ruled out suicide as he was quote a strong swimmer hmm. Hmm. don't really know that that matters but okay yeah so finally there's the murder option Gordon Thomas alleges that the hotel in Madeira that Maxwell went to uh, when he first arrived had been checked into by a Kedon, a two-man Mossad cell. 
Um, it's unknown what they're supposed to have talked about, but the fact that Maxwell left, went to a bar and sat in silence for an hour doesn't suggest that anything good came out of it. Ari Ben-Manash, the source for Seymour Hersh's and Gordon Thomas's allegations about Maxwell's Mossad connections, would allege that in Tenerife on the night of his death, one of that Mossad team connect contacted Maxwell, telling him that a delivery would be made to him between 4 and 5 a.m. He was to go up on deck on the starboard side. The swell of the sea and the engines meant that a small four-man craft could approach undetected, safe in the knowledge that there was a camera blind spot and no watch would disturb them. Two frogmen came aboard, carrying a waterproof pouch with a syringe containing a lethal nerve agent. They plunged it into Maxwell's neck, grabbed his body and lowered it over the side, getting back into the dinghy and making their escape. God knows there was plenty of motive for someone to have assassinated Maxwell at this point, yeah. but there was actually very little physical evidence. The Tenerife autopsy had done no chemical tests of his organs, and they had been taken and stored in formalin, a preservative, washing away any hope of potentially finding what chemicals were in his organs at the time of his death. The Spanish police investigation was rudimentary. No evidence had been taken. All of the clothes and items on the bedroom floor were undisturbed. There was no forensic examination of the deck, the railings, or the hull. So Maxwell's last wish had been to be buried on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. While obviously he had been originally autopsied locally in Tenerife, once Maxwell's body was in Israel, he was subject to one last audit by the famous forensic pathologist Ian West, who often conducted forensic examinations for the intelligence services and Scotland Yard. Mm -hmm. Maxwell had a Lloyd life insurance policy of £20 million, and if it was ruled a suicide, then they wouldn't have to pay out to Betty Maxwell. That's why they brought Ian West in. The second autopsy worked under a very tight time frame and could produce limited conclusive evidence for how he died. The heart, esophagus, bladder, endocrine organs were all gone, taken by the funeral preparation. West did discover that the left shoulder muscle was badly torn, forming a theory that Maxwell had been hanging from the yacht and his excessive weight had torn the muscle, forcing him into the sea. Was this from a suicide attempt that he then aborted, or was it from someone wrenching him over the side into the sea? There were no marks on his chest from him hitting the side as he dangled. Perhaps the most damning evidence from the second autopsy was a very small puncture wound that was found at the neck. Whether this was a syringe or whether a fish had got at it, pathologists couldn't say. Ian West's report didn't rule out murder, but was inconclusive due to the lack of evidence left by the Tenerife autopsy. The torn shoulder muscle could have been the result of an aborted suicide attempt, attempt, but it was only one scenario of many. Homicide, similarly, was impossible to exclude. If he had been committing suicide, why did he have that torn shoulder? And mm. if he had been facing outwards, how would he have then twisted to grab the rail? Remember, there's nothing on his chest, so there's no, there's no way he was facing the boat grabbing the railway, rail, yeah. which you would expect from that scenario. In the end, the only two realistic options for the cause of Maxwell's death are suicide and murder, but there's no way of deciding which. When Maxwell's family arrived on Tenerife, Ghislaine Maxwell was sent out to deal with a throng of reporters outside the yacht that bore her name. She answered questions, and as she turned to leave, a reporter shouted, how did your father die? Ghislaine, always Maxwell's favourite, answered, I think he was murdered. And with one final flourish emblematic of Maxwell's recent financial situation, the funeral director in Tenerife would not release the body until he was paid in full. On the, flight from the yeah. On the flight from the Canaries to Jerusalem, two Israeli fighter jets took up positions either side of the chartered Maxwell plane. They would escort it into Jerusalem. He was given a state funeral 
A young rabbi interrupted the service, gesticulating and shouting at the other rabbis. No one ever found out what he was shouting about. President Chaim Herzog delivered an extraordinary eulogy. He scaled the heights. Kings and barons besieged his doorstep. He was a figure of almost mythical stature, an actor of the world stage, bestriding the globe, as Shakespeare says, like a colossus. Shimon Peres, former prime minister, also spoke, saying he has done more for Israel than can be said here today. So after his death, the press was in a frenzy, unsure of which story to report first. Maxwell had died at the exact moment his business intelligence and media defences had all crumbled. The Mirror's then political editor, Alistair Campbell, apparently punched a journalist on another title who mocked the tycoon's demise. Huh. Weird. Yeah. Weird loyalty. Yeah. Again, that endless loyalty from someone like Alistair Campbell as well. Yeah. Kevin and Ian Maxwell would be arrested in June 1992. Kevin Maxwell was declared bankrupt a few months later. The debts from the dissolution of the Maxwell Empire were £405 million, the largest bankruptcy in British history. A Department of Trade and Industry report condemned Kevin for the pension fund scandal, but also criticised the bankers and financiers who had lived off the commissions while ignoring his rampant fraud. Both Kevin and Ian were exonerated of all charges in 1996. No one ever faced prosecution for what had happened with the pension fund. Oh, Incredible. Yeah. That's pretty standard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Betty Maxwell was largely exonerated of any knowledge of wrongdoing. Um, she failed to pursue the life insurance claim uh, that she had on her husband through the courts due to the Ferrari over the pension scandal. She continued traveling and lecturing on Holocaust studies well into her 80s, and she passed away in 2013. Vladimir Kryuchkov, the KGB chairman, was given amnesty for plotting the coup against Gorbachev in 1994 and died of natural causes in 2007. Andrei Lukanov, Maxwell's mm -hmm. Bulgarian partner in the Never Project, founded the multi-group group of companies based on Maxwell's Bulgarian kind of pattern of companies, mm -hmm. and in 1995 became boss at Top Energy, a joint Russian-Bulgarian oil company. The group was accused of attempting to assassinate the Macedonian president in 1995, and six months later, Ivo Yanchev, multi-group's then president, was found hanging in a toilet in the Bistrika Management Center, which Maxwell had months, once owned. Lukanov himself was shot and killed at point-blank range outside of his apartment in 1996. The estimated amount plundered from Bulgaria during and after the Maxwell period was $10 billion, Ooh. and the country's national debt was only $9 billion. Ooh. Two months after Maxwell's death, on December 25th, the Soviet Union dissolved and the Cold War ended. Ghislaine Maxwell, his favourite daughter, moved to the US permanently after her father's death. She was awarded an £80,000 annual income from a trust fund in Liechtenstein. Huh. In New York, she became close with a young, co-getting financial analyst called Jeffrey Epstein. And you know the rest of the story. She continued to make public statements about her father's death, commenting in 1997, he did not commit suicide. That was just not consistent with his character. I think he was murdered. So to sum up, um, I kind of came into this trying to answer the question of, of Robert Maxwell, like how a figure that was so loomed so large in the British public like mind state yeah. just disappeared after he died. These people who seem such non-negotiable parts of a society's culture just kind of disappear. Hmm. So like if you compare him to someone like, I don't know, like a William Randolph Hearst in the US, mm -hmm. there's been like films and homages to his likeness for years. He's a trope. He's a stereotype. Mm -hmm. 
But other than a TV movie starring David Suchet, the most persistent pop culture remnant of Maxwell is in comedy. Private Eye, Drop mm. the Dead Donkey, Sweetheart. And if, if, if comedy is this pressure valve, this a way of disarming something that's potentially more dangerous or serious, what was it in Maxwell that means he's only remembered by, by comedy programs? Mm. You know? Yeah. After his death, this kind of public persona was kind of taken over by Mohammed Al-Fayed. Yeah. Right. Again, another rich man who doesn't quite belong, according to those unspoken codes of behavior. But again, he's another comedy character. He's only ever ridiculed. He's never really considered dangerous in that way. Yeah. It's very odd. He's never serious. Mm. Robert Maxwell kind of molded his image to the archetype of, of the tycoon. I don't think he really added anything new onto it. And because his the structure of his empire and the structure of everything he owned it was all based around him personally it was all in his brain it couldn't function without him by design when he died and even with the pension scandal it didn't shake people's trust in the system it didn't make a mark people just concluded he was always that way what yeah. more could you expect from robert maxwell i remember when he died like the overwhelming feeling was oh yeah no that's yeah that's of course that happened yeah but I think there's also a bit of parochialism in the way that Maxwell's remembered. You know, the private eye conflicts, the mirror, new big newspaper man, the pension scandal. They're all what Maxwell meant to Britain. And the tendency is to think of Maxwell in terms of a purely British legacy. But I think what I've tried to kind of show here is that he was way much more of a worldwide figure. Yeah. And I think his real legacy is a lot more abstract. He was firmly a figure of the 20th century. I can't think of anyone more 20th century than him. Yeah. Um, and yet the way he ran his empire, his financial dealings, all these things would be perfected and even automated after his death. He pioneered so many poisonous elements of, of like <laughs> this historical moment right now. Yeah. Okay, So he's a, he's a labor-supporting billionaire who undermined trade unions and broke workers by promising support and rewards to the ones who weren't sacked. Yeah. He was a newspaper magnate who inserted his own editorial control over his, his papers and offered these services to the state when they needed them. Yeah. He's a technological entrepreneur who saw the, weight, uh, the value of weightless information brokering years before the internet took over everything. He was a financial grifter who secured billions in inflated profits and kept money circulating in offshore funds to avoid accountability. That's just how everybody acts now. Look yeah. at the Panama Papers, yeah. and nothing's happened. He would raid pension funds, which is, pension funds were a huge source of capital for the financialization of economies and before the 2007 crisis, all mm. of those uh, amounts they're dealing with in, in stock markets, all those things they're, they're converting into, into shares, that's powered largely by uh, remnants of the welfare state and their, their pension funds. Mm. Um, through his dealings with Promise, he spread surveillance technology with backdoor access for states <laughs> across the world. He literally he stole technology. Well, he was involved in a scheme stealing technology and reverse engineering it for domestic markets. That's what China does now. Yeah. Um, there is an argument that the emigration of Jewish Soviet citizens that Maxwell helped with undermined the power that Palestinian labor had within Israel, which would then kind of encourage the Israeli state's kind of nonchalant reaction to the Second Intifada. They didn't need to deal with them anymore because they had kind of uh, uh, an influx of, of cheap labor from from jewish citizens from the soviet countries mm. you could even argue he was the first oligarch of the post-soviet world securing assets from relationships with soviet elites and moving them out of the country using a model that other eastern bloc billionaires would follow <laughs> um and finally i just think that 
looking at someone like Maxwell presents us with a useful kind of contrast as socialists. When you're thinking of militancy, when you're th thinking of defeating or like outpowering your class opponents, too often we don't think of beyond the images of the guillotine, of storming the winter palaces, mm -hmm. of removing individuals. Mm -hmm. But when Maxwell died, everything around him died too, his companies, his assets. Also, perhaps the idea of the all-powerful personalized capitalist. The hole he left with all those things I just mentioned were filled by nameless, faceless organizations that operated on his logic but weren't predicated on one individual corporate interests, by that I mean literally in the sense of being shared by a group, uh, like banks, big business, even the intelligence agencies and organs of the state, were all moving away from charismatic individuals, famous inventors, famous owners, like even famous spies, if yeah. you believe that. Um, they're all moving away from charismatic individuals having real control over operations. Those few left, like, I don't know, a Steve Jobs or a Mike Ashley, can operate with nowhere near the level of impunity that Maxwell did. Mm. The unloving, undying, brutally impersonal, ruthless form of capitalist organization that we know and love today has won out. And that's what we're fighting. It's not just individuals. The systems Maxwell set up or perfected are now so ingrained in what's broken about our society and our world. And while we don't have the option to just remove the individual responsible, we don't have a, we don't have a Maxwell to drown. <laughs> while Robert Maxwell died with the short 20th century, I think he gave birth to the 21st century. That's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at WDT80W underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo. Follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game When Mr. Hoover said to cut my dinner